You know, we're excited about this morning. As Matt said at the beginning, every week, if you come here normally, you know this, we talk about our mission and we talk about our purpose. You know, we say our purpose is to lead people into a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. And just so you know, we're not just saying that so that, you know, if you're checking our church out, you kind of get an understanding about who we are and what we're all about. We're mostly talking to ourselves. I'm saying to me, hey, you know what? This church is about leading people into a growing relationship with Jesus. And we are saying over and over and over and over and over and over again, to this people of this church who are on this mission or ought to be, that's what the mission is. And what's so exciting about today is that today is one of these opportunities for us to play our role as pastors. Our role as pastors is to equip you to do the ministry. I don't know if you know that, but biblically speaking, that's the deal. I know everybody kind of looks at us and go, but you guys are collecting the paycheck. You guys are the ones who are supposed to do the ministry. No, 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 no. We're the ones we're supposed to equip and to encourage and to pray for and, and, and to help you do the work of the ministry. And today is a very, very exciting day in that regard. So we're really excited, and, uh, and we hope that you share that enthusiasm. This morning, uh, I have the privilege of bringing you a story that's one of the most famous stories in the New Testament. It's out of the Gospel of John, and it's prefaced by a little comment in verse 4 that most of us, I think, just run right past. I mean, it's kind of one of those comments that's obviously sort of a prefatory comment. It's a comment where John is setting up the story, but it's a hugely important comment. It sort of establishes the framework for this whole deal. John, at the beginning of this story, says Jesus had, and that's the word that I want you to think about. Jesus had to pass through Samaria. He doesn't come along and say, look, here's the deal. At the beginning of the story, Jesus is down in Jerusalem, and Jerusalem is down in the south, though that's where he is. And Jesus wants to go up to the north into Galilee, though that's where Galilee is, and that's exactly what he wants to do. And Samaria lies in between, by the way, just a little geography lesson. So Jesus tried to figure out what was the most direct, the safest, you know, the route with the best hotels and restaurants, and he map-quested it, and, you know, he came up with this route that's through Samaria. That seemed to be the best way to go, so he decided to take that route, and he went through Samaria. That's not what it says. It says that Jesus had to pass through Samaria, and if you're reading the story carefully, which is the way we need to read the Bible, you got to then say, well, why? Why did he have to? Because it wasn't the only way to go. In fact, it was incredibly unusual for a Jew, particularly a Jewish rabbi, which at the very least Jesus is, to go through Samaria because the Jews hated the Samaritans and the Samaritans hated the Jews. They, you know, returned the favor. It was a reciprocal relationship. See, 700 years before Jesus is even born and comes on the scene, the Assyrian Empire, the, you know, the, the ancient enemies of Israel to the north swept down into this region of land that we'll refer to in the story as Samaria, and they captured it. And they took all of these Jewish people into captivity, leaving some behind but taking a large number back up into Assyria to serve as slaves and whatever else. And then they repopulated this area known as Samaria with non-Jews who then married the Jews who remained and greatly, greatly offended their full-blooded Jewish neighbors to the south who felt like, you know, by intermarrying with these people and then producing this mixed race, if you will, known as the Samaritans, they had somehow rejected the covenant God of Abraham, of Isaac, of Jacob. And then they made the offense all the greater because they made a terrible theological decision, these Samaritans did. They came along and they rejected a large portion of the Old Testament. They rejected everything but the first five books. Well, to the Jews, these scriptures are precious. To the Jews, they contain the very oracles of God, you see. 
Huge offense. And so began this long, contentious relationship that lasted all the way up and through the days of Christ where these people not only hated one another, but they literally committed acts of terrorism upon one another. Terrorism is not a new thing. And so the bottom line is if you're a Jew and you want to go from Jerusalem in the south to Galilee in the north and that's what Jesus wants to do, you don't pass through Samaria. You go around it. It's like going from here to Orlando by way of Tampa. Seriously. And yet John comes to us and he says, well, something you guys need to know at the beginning of the story here, and that is that Jesus had mandatory language to pass through Samaria. Why? To share life. That's why. You know, the reality is, and I think one of the reasons why we get freaked out about this idea of talking to people about Jesus and so on and so forth is, you know, sharing life takes us places that literally and figuratively, we don't always want to go. It calls us to talk to people that, you know, we may be cool about talking about the weather with or about sports with or about business with or about kids with or about pretty much anything but Jesus with, but it calls us at times to talk to people about Jesus with them too. Jesus had to pass through Samaria, and I think what you need to understand to kind of feel this viscerally is that there is a woman in heaven who is forever grateful that he did. And I pray that there will be people in heaven that are forever grateful also that we did, that I did, that you did. There is a Samaria, and there are Samaritans in each one of our little worlds. So anyway, John says, and Jesus had to pass through Samaria, gathers up his little band of disciples, and they enter into Samaria. Very, very unusual. And so he came to a town of Samaria, says John, called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. And then John adds this. He says, and Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from the journey, the Son of God in the flesh is tired. He's a real man. And he's hot, and he's weary, and he's tired, and he's thirsty, you know. And so he sits down by the well. It says that he wearied as he was from the journey. He was sitting beside the well. He sits down at the well, and he says to his disciples, Guys, I want you to go into town and get lunch. And town's about a half mile away. The well is outside of the town. And then John tells us something that's very, very significant. Another little comment that you can just run by if you're not reading it carefully. It's like he stands up at the beginning of the story and he points to the clock. And he says, you've got to understand what time it is to understand this story, this person that Jesus is going to meet. He says it was about the sixth hour. That means it was noon. It's the hottest time of the day. And so Jesus sits down at the well at the hottest time of the day. He's hot, he's tired, he's sweating, okay? His disciples head off into town to get lunch. And as they're going into town, they pass by this woman, this Samaritan woman who's coming out of this little village, this town of Sychar, and she has her clay water pot, and of course it's empty, and she's heading out to the well in the middle of the day all by herself to get water, which again is unusual. In the days of Christ, women did not go to the well alone, and they didn't go to the well alone for reasons of protection. I mean, my goodness, you know, there aren't a lot of wells, and so people from all over the place would come to these wells, and you just don't know who you're going to meet out at the well. You don't want to be a woman going out to the well by yourself. You went with everyone else in the village, if you will, all the other women. All the women would go together. There's strength and numbers, and it was a big social event, and they would not go in the middle of the day, guys. They went in the beginning of the day, and they went at the end of the day. Why? Because in the middle of the day... It's like hotter than the face of the sun, okay? 
And the last thing in the world that you want to do in the Middle East, in the middle of the day, is to take a half-mile walk to some well and then hoist up a bunch of water out of that well and then hoist that water up on your head or your shoulder or your back or wherever it is that you're going to carry that dude and then take it a half-mile back to your house. They went at the beginning of the day, they went at the end of the day, and they went together, but not her. She goes alone. You see, this wouldn't be difficult to read culturally for Christ. This wouldn't be difficult to read culturally for His disciples as they pass by this woman who probably they didn't even look at. And I'm quite sure she didn't look at them either. It would have been understood, this woman has a past. This woman has some issues. This woman is going out to the well at at noon because she doesn't want to see anyone else. She's walking out there praying, please, dear God, let no one be here. There's a very real sense in which the clock in this story tells us something about where this woman is at, spiritually speaking, when she meets Christ. And she goes to the well bathed in sin and bathed in guilt and bathed in shame. And I'm sure she had her excuses and I'm sure she had her defenses and I'm sure she had a story that she could tell you by which she could try to justify it. But the reality is she knows it and everyone else in town knows it. And as you'll see in a minute, Jesus knows it, and she goes out there carrying this clay pot, which is emblematic, it's symbolic of so very much more than just a physical thirst. So so Jesus, wearied as He was from the journey, was sitting beside the well, and it was about the sixth hour. That's what time it is on the clock, not just literally, but figuratively. That's where this woman is at in life, and it says a woman from Samaria came to draw water, and then Jesus does something else that's incredibly unusual. He speaks to her. See, today it would be rude if he didn't say anything. So we just don't get that. It's like, well, yeah, Jesus is talking to this woman at the well. What a big deal is, you know. Then, my goodness, it was stunning. It was seen, and I'm sorry, ladies, but it was seen back then as beneath a man to speak publicly to a woman. There are actually rabbinical writings that have survived to today that date back to at least that time period that say, let not a man speak to a woman in the street, not even his own wife. All right? Some of you men would like to resurrect that. You know, you're getting too much conversation, aren't you? You're like, yes, she talks too much. (laughs) Jesus speaks to this woman. And hey, you know what? If you're going to share life, you have to speak, don't you? You do. And what a privilege that is. Jesus says to this woman, and notice what he says. It's striking. He says, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Okay, so he speaks with a woman, but not just a woman, a Samaritan woman, and not just a Samaritan woman, but a Samaritan woman who's come out at noon, which is like, you know, she might as well be carrying a billboard going, hey, scandal is passed. And he doesn't just say, hey, how you doing? Look, I'm kind of new to the area. I'm a little bit thirsty. Is there a 7-Eleven around here somewhere? Because I'd like to get a Gatorade. It's not it. He's not talking about the weather. He's not talking about... He says to her something that's really significant. You're like, he's thirsty. Ask for a drink. What's the big deal? No, no, no. Think about what that communicates. He's not only communicating to her, I'm willing to speak to you. He's saying, I'm willing to touch what you have touched, to drink what you drink to place my lips where you place yours. Jesus is not a germaphobe. I would be asking all kinds of questions about her health. (laughs) 
Seriously, it'd be like, how you've been feeling lately? Is anybody sick in the house? How long have you had that lip sore, you know? Is it a recurring condition or... But get this for a minute. No sanitization necessary for Christ. And everyone here ought to worship a whole lot louder for that reality. Everyone here. Stunning. He says, give me a drink with all that that communicated. And she's so blown away, and you can understand why. And she like completely ignores his request. It says, the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman, but not just a woman, no, 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 a woman of Samaria with a publicly scandalous past? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritan. And then, you know, Jesus, if you know the story, says something like, hey, lady, can we stick with the topic? Can we stay, you know, kind of on task here? Son of God, little thirsty, asked you for a drink, you're taking me down another road. I'll get to that in a second, but I raised a question I'd like to sort of say on point. It's not what he does. Even though he is, in fact, the Son of God, the sinless, the holy Son of God, the creator and the sustainer of the heavens and the earth, the one that we just worshiped and sang about with lyrics that are profound. And even though he is, in fact, sitting there in a physical body, hot, tired, sweating away in the heat of the day, the hottest part of the day, and he is thirsty, and she is who she is, a Samaritan woman with a publicly scandalous past who has come to the well bathed in sin and guilt and shame and carrying a water pot that is emblematic of the thirst of her soul and of all of her attempts to satisfy that thirst with all of the wrong things, even though Jesus is who Jesus is in this story and this woman is who she is, he just kind of goes with it. It's fascinating. He asks for a drink, she completely ignores him and says, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria, with a publicly scandalous past for Jews, John says, have no dealings with Samaritans, and Jesus answered her, if you knew the what, because it's a big word, if you knew the gift... If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have sold you some living water. He would have traded with you, bartered with you. There would have been some kind of a give and take with you with regard to this living water. I mean, you would have done something for him and then he would have rewarded you. But no, you would have asked and he would have given living water. Whatever living water is, guys, it comes from Jesus and it's free. Free for, the, free for the asking, free for the taking, but what is it? I mean, it sounds amazing. You read it, Joe, and I, he would have given you living water. You're like, yes! Wait a minute. What does that mean? What is this living water? The living water is the life-giving Holy Spirit of the living God who leads to repentance, who leads to faith, who leads to forgiveness, who leads to healing and wholeness and wellness, who gives a life here that is abundant and eternal life through faith in Christ with the Father. That's quite a gift. That's pretty amazing. Jesus answered her, if you, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. But here's the problem. She doesn't know who it is that's asking her for the drink, does she? Not yet. 
So she goes on, the woman said to him, sir, I, I don't mean to be Captain Obvious here, but you don't have anything to draw with and the well is deep. Thus, your question to me, can I have a drink? You know, I mean, what are you talking about? Where do you get that living water? Because if I know anything, it's that the water from this well, and for that matter, the water that I've been drawing out of this town all of my life cannot possibly be it. Because here I am again. Here I am again carrying this pot that is, well, symbolic of a thirst that's far more than just physical. I don't just need a cup of water. I need a whole lot more. And then she adds this. She says, are you greater than our father Jacob? Because he gave us the well and and drank from it himself as did his sons and his livestock. Now, what is the answer to that question? Because if you know who Jesus is, it's almost insulting. Am I greater than Jacob? Hmm, Oh, I don't know. Let me think. Did Jacob speak the worlds into existence? Did he he do that? Because if he did, I mean, maybe we've got something to talk about here, you know? Jesus is infinitely greater than Jacob. He's so much greater than Jacob, he could go on and on and on forever expounding upon how much greater he is than Jacob. Are you greater than our father Jacob? What then does Christ do? Does he kind of whip out a magical whiteboard and give her sort of a little mini seminar on exactly how much greater than Jacob? I mean, we'll just cover the first three points. That's it, and then that'll be enough. No. Instead of rebuking her and teaching her in this moment just how much greater than Jacob he really is and saying, lady, you know, I mean, come on now, get it together. He again just kind of goes with it. You know, he's letting her lead this conversation. She's taking the conversation and he's kind of just kind of going with it, even though he's thirsty, even though he's hot, even though it started with, can I have a drink? Because, you know, I mean, I'm sweating out here. It's been a long trip. It's fascinating. But what do you think that communicates to her? What does it communicate to her when he doesn't kind of shut her down and go, you know, that's interesting, but let's stay on task? Or, why, I, 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 you know, that's, that's a nice little question you've got there, but I have something I want to communicate. It communicates value. It says, look, I'm interested in what you're interested in. I care enough about you to listen to what it is that you have to say, to address your questions, to address your issues. Jesus is meeting this woman right where she's at on the clock spiritually. She says to him, sir, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. So she's not getting the living water thing. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself as did his sons and his livestock And instead of giving her a seminar, Jesus says this. He he says to her, everyone who drinks of this water, you know, this water that's coming out of the well that Jacob gave you, everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. Why? Because our bodies, but not just our bodies, our souls are not satisfied by the waters of this world. And that's true whether you're talking about the water of Jacob's well. I mean, you're going to go out to the well. How many times are you going to have to go out to the well? Is it like you go out once and then you're satisfied? That's it? No. Every day. See? Or the well of relationships. Or the well of marriage. Or the well of children. Or the well of money or sex or status or stuff or travel or experience or whatever. 
If that's what we're trying to satisfy our thirsty souls with, then what we're going to end up doing is running from one thing to the next 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 thing. And just like a cup of water, it satisfies, and then you're thirsty again. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water that Jacob gave you will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him, see, he is greater. And he offers a different kind of water. He says, everyone who drinks of the water that I will give him will, wow, never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become where? Because it's significant. It will become in him, not outside of him. Not something that's out here that I'm trying to import into my body or into my soul. It will become in him. It's resident inside the Spirit of God. The the water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water, not some stagnant pool, not some well where it just sits, but it's bubbling up. It's ever coming forward, a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And I love this woman's response. She's still not understanding what he's talking about, but she does know she's thirsty and she wants it. It says the woman said to him, Sir... Give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here in the heat of the day all by myself because of the indignity that I bear in this town. Day after day with my clay pot to draw water. She's saying, look, I'm thirsty, but she still doesn't understand yet how to satisfy that thirst. She's saying, look, I want to be satisfied. I, I, I want this living water. It's, it sounded really pretty awesome to me. But she doesn't know who or what it is yet. And so Jesus just cuts right to the chase. It's amazing what he does. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. And Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. And the woman answered him, probably under her breath, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you're right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one that you have now is not your husband, and that's why your reputation is what it is in this little town. That's why you came to the well at noon, bathed in sin and guilt and shame. That's what you've been trying desperately and frantically to satisfy your thirsty soul with. That's where you're at on the clock, he's identifying, you see. He says, what you have said is true. And some of you are thinking, well, what you have said is rude. Is it? Is it really? I think Jesus is merely meeting this woman where she's at on the clock. I think he is revealing her thirst to her for what it really is. And that's not rude, it's a gift. And then he's illustrating in some sense, for her life is a living illustration of this, from her own life he's saying, look... The waters of this world don't satisfy, and you, and I, and every one of you are living proof of that. And he's doing it for what reason? To shame her, to put her down, to make her feel guilty, to make her feel bad, to just pile on, you know, I mean, it's bad enough the whole town is piled on, so now Jesus is piling on too. Is that, no, 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 he's not doing that. He's doing that to lead her away from the waters of this world and to the living water that he alone offers. He wants her to be satisfied. He's sharing life. 
Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. And the woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you're right. You're right in saying, I have no husband for you. have had five husbands, and the one that you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. And the woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Really? I mean, she's starting to figure out that, ah, maybe there's something special about this Jesus. You know what the truth is? Every person in your little world and in mine, all the people with whom we work, live, and play can say that and would say that. I mean, my goodness, who's going to deny that Jesus is special? Who even would say that he's not a prophet? There are worshiping communities right now all over the world worshiping the Lord Christ. Right now, 2,000 years after he died and rose again from the dead. But think about that. I mean, Jesus is clearly extraordinary. No one in their right mind would argue about that. She's picking up at least that much at this point, but that's not enough, is it? I mean, sharing life is helping people understand that Jesus is more than just extraordinary, that he's more than just a prophet, significantly more. She says, sir, I perceive that you're a prophet and then she says, our fathers worshiped on this mountain. This mountain that she's referring to is Mount Gerizim. It's, it's visible from where they're standing geographically. She's saying, our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you, meaning you Jews, say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. And it almost sounds like she's trying to change the topic on him. You know, he's put his finger on her sin. It hurt a little bit. And she's going, well, you know, you're religious. Let's talk about something else. How about worship? But I'm not sure that's what she's doing. I think maybe there's a sense in which here she's acknowledging, okay, you're right. I'm a big fat sinner. But what in the world now am I supposed to do? Because you Jews tell me that I have to atone for my sins by offering sacrifices and worshiping, if you will, at the temple in Jerusalem. And hello, we've got a 700-year you know, period of contention going with the Jews. I am unclean in the eyes of the Jews. I can't get anywhere near that temple. It's foreclosed to me. And parenthetically, you know, I mean, our fathers worshiped on this mountain here, but you're telling me I'm still guilty, and my heart and pretty much everyone else in town agrees. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you're a prophet, so tell me. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain here, and, but you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where the people ought to worship, so what do I do? Where do I go? What's the answer? And Jesus takes the conversation where she leaves it off, you see. Often running with it, Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain, this one that we can see here, this Mount Gerizim, nor in Jerusalem, will you worship the Father, you, meaning you Samaritans, worship what you do not know. We Jews worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But then he says this, But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. And then don't miss this, for the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. What is the Father seeking? Is it converts? Is that what He says? The Father is seeking worshipers. The end game is not converts. The heavens and the earth are created to worship the Lord God. And our motivation for sharing life is to see God get the glory that He is due. 
We are to be so captured by the vision of the glory of God that we cannot rest knowing that there is anyone who is not giving him the glory that he is due, who does not know him, who has not his life. Jesus says, but the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking, seeking such persons, such people to worship Him. And then at least in my imagination, I kind of see her throwing her hands up in the air. It's like, she said to Him, I know that Messiah is coming. He who is called Christ, and when He comes... Well, then he will tell us all things. I mean, it's kind of like, oh, well, you know, I mean, when the Messiah shows up, he's going to explain all this stuff. He's going to work all this out for us. End of conversation. No. Because she's raised the issue of the Messiah. She raised the issue of the Messiah. And what then does Jesus do? Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. It's amazing. He reveals himself to her. He gives to her the gift of abundant and eternal life. And what's the response? I mean, what then happens in her life? What do we see her then do? Because like a verse later, it says, so the woman left her water jar, which again is emblematic of what? Because it's not just a physical thirst. It's emblematic of the thirst of her soul and of all of the things that she has tried to satisfy that thirst with. She left her water jar and she went away into this town that she had previously been trying to escape to the very people that she had previously been trying to avoid. And she said to these people who had to be going, whoa, you know, she says, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Now, from their perspective, what's remarkable about that? Probably not a lot. I mean, from her perspective, it's remarkable because she knows this guy's not from this town and there's no way this guy knew anything about me and, 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 and. But from their perspective, here comes this woman that, frankly, everyone in town knows everything she ever did. And so now she's claiming some guy out at the well knows everything she ever did. Really? Shocking. I think what's remarkable is her. What's remarkable is that this woman who was previously paralyzed with sin and guilt and shame, she went to the well at noon to stay away from all these people, was apparently set free. What's remarkable is that this woman who was famous for trying to satisfy her thirst in all the wrong way seems to be satisfied. It's stunning. She says, come and see a man who told me all that I ever did. See, the natural reaction of those of us who have found life in Christ ought to be to share it. And that was the reaction for so many of us, but it's grown cold. It needs to be reignited. And then she says this, can this be the Christ? That doesn't mean, oh, I'm wondering, you know, it The translation there is you guys need to come out and meet Jesus. And when you do, you'll find that He meets you exactly where you are at on the clock. You'll find a Savior who's interested in what you're interested in and who cares enough, by the way, to listen to your story, to address your questions, to answer your issues, and then to lead you away from the waters of this world which do not and cannot satisfy to the waters of His Spirit, 
to the waters of his life. That's what Share Life Sunday is all about. I mean, that's what this whole day is about. It's about finding life in Christ and then becoming better equipped to go out and share that life with the people in your world, people in your family, people in your office. You know, I mean, even Samaritans, really. And so our prayer this morning is that you guys will stick around to become equipped to do it. It's going to be an exciting day. We're going to have a lot of fun. We're not going to put you on the spot and call you up on stage and, you know, make you do anything weird. It's not going to be, you know, an uncomfortable deal and we're going to send you to Publix and don't come back until you've evangelized. We're not going to do that. Okay? Maybe a few of you. But, no, really, your children are going to be equipped even as you are being equipped. And then we end it with free food. So, I mean, you, you know... Seriously, and it's food that would make the Baptists jealous. Keep that in mind. We whip the Baptists when it comes to food. They eat more frequently, we eat better. It's true. Quality over quantity. But hey, really, seriously, we have cleared our schedule as a church. We've canceled our 11 o'clock service. We've held off on restarting our community groups to give you a little extra time. Stick around. That you might better learn how to share life. I'm going to pray, and then Matt Lominick's going to come up, and he's going to give us some instructions, and, uh, and we're good to go, okay? Father, we thank you that in your sovereign mercies and grace, you have shared life with us. God, you've opened our eyes to the beauty of Jesus, to the reality that he is more than just an extraordinary guy, that he's more than just a great teacher or prophet, that he's more than just some blaze of miracles from the first century, but that he is God himself, the Son of the living God, come to save us from our sins. Come to bring us into your family. Come to make us your sons and your daughters. Come that we might give you the glory and the worship that you are due. Take that glory from us, we pray. We pray. And Lord, this day, make it glorious. Be pleased in it. Go before it. Anoint it. And Holy Spirit, walk among us now as we learn, as we listen, as we interact one with another. Give us the joy of the Lord and of His fellowship. And Father, equip us that we might do a better and more effective job in our mission as individuals and families and as a church of leading people into a growing relationship with your son, Jesus. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.